going to start with John chapter 12. And because it's Palm Sunday and people were so rejoicing, you should stand for this because they were standing. And they were waving palm branches. Once you stand, hold your Bibles. You don't have to wave your Bible in the air. You could. If that's how you worship, go for it. But um, we're going to read, starting with verse 12, John chapter 12, and I'll be reading through verse 15. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and did you know he's coming back to Jerusalem? Closer by the second. When they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, and he's coming again, sitting on a donkey's colt. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your son's coming. We thank you that he came to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago this week. We thank you for what he accomplished in that week. We pray, Lord, that this morning you would quiet our minds, quiet our souls, remove every distraction. Lord, let us hear from you, Jesus, our shepherd, our Lord, our King, our Savior. Lord, remove me once again from the equation. I am a very flawed, imperfect person to deliver a perfect and holy gospel. But Lord, I pray that you would be merciful and you would deliver it as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I don't know if you know, maybe, maybe you do. I bet some of you do know and some of you don't know, but this is Passover week. It actually started last night at sundown. Were you all aware of that? So when the sun went down, Passover began. And it corresponds to what we call Easter week or Passion week. Uh, Passion week or Easter week are based on the Gregorian calendar. Passover, well, that week is based on the lunar Jewish calendar. And Passion Week and Passover Week, they don't always line up. This week they do, which I always love when they line up, and this week, this particular year, they do line up. Next year they overlap, but they don't coincide. But at this same time of year, it was Passover Week roughly 2,000 years ago. More precisely, it was the onset of Passover Week as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And that would be unlike any other Passover in the history of Israel, as unique as that very first Passover in Egypt when the Lord passed over every house and every house had to have the spotless lamb that had the blood applied to this side of the door, the other side of the door, and the lentil at the top. But this Passover feast, the one that Jesus is entering, it wouldn't just be for Israel, it would be for the whole world. And it wouldn't be the blood of many lambs, but one spotless lamb that needed to be applied. This week was the fulfillment of John the Baptist's powerful proclamation. At the outset of Jesus' ministry when he said what? Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29. But if you were visiting Jerusalem, 
there at the start of the week, you would have never imagined how the week would go, would you? What would transpire in just a matter of days? Yet it was all part of the predetermined will and plan of God. And it revealed both the heart and the condition of mankind. Do you know what you see on the news isn't the half of how evil this world is? Oh, it's just a tiny glimpse. But it would also that week, it would reveal the incredible love of God in the person of Jesus, his only begotten son, the sacrificial lamb for sin. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Palms, Praise, and Piercing. One week that revealed humanity and the matchless love of Jesus. Now it's worth noting, as I mentioned, you know, we're in the book of John in our study, um, nearly half of John's gospel is about this one week. Did you know that? Nearly half of the book of John is about this one week. It's about 33% of Matthew's gospel. It's nearly 40% of Mark's gospel. It's about 25% of Luke's gospel this one week to cover seven days in the life of Jesus. And I have to cover it in 45 minutes. All day if you got it, but, uh, but I don't think you do. Now the scene of Jesus' arrival, it's glorious, isn't it? It's like a Super Bowl celebration, but instead of the whole team, it's all about one man who's the entire focus of the whole celebration. Thousands upon thousands of Jewish pilgrims would arrive every year from all over the Mediterranean, all over Europe, the Middle East, North Africa, and even beyond. But this particular Passover feast, the word had spread that there's a Jewish carpenter that's had a three-year ministry, and he's been teaching with great authority. How many of you have ever heard some really good speakers in your life? You usually know within minutes, I'm going to like this teaching, or I'm going to like this speaker. It's a TED Talk, and I can tell they're just engaging. There's something about, but Jesus... He takes the top off of all that. When he began to speak, everyone was like, he speaks with authority. I need to listen. I need need to tune into what he's saying. And he had also displayed miraculous power, hadn't he? Healing thousands. Can you imagine if you were in that day and age? I I try and contemporize it sometime. Can you just imagine taking Jesus? How many of you work in healthcare? Raise your hand. We've got several of you. Look at all the hands. Can you imagine Jesus coming to Johnson Willis or St. Francis and saying, Jesus is here today and he's here to empty the entire place? Everybody. But we've got people that are like on life support. Doesn't matter. Every single person healed, go home. Doctors, you have nothing to do for the next month. Wouldn't that be great? And Jesus did that. Not like that. He had even raised people from the dead. And now they knew his name. His name is Yeshua. Yeshua. The Old Testament, Joshua. His name is Jesus. And the collective excitement was palpable. People knew he had just healed someone in Bethany. Or raised the dead in Bethany. Could this man, people are thinking in their mind, could this man be what all Israel was hoping for? 
a mighty ruler to supplant Rome. You, you hear us complain about our politicians? They did then too. Boy, we could get rid of Caesar and put Jesus on the throne. He could assume the throne of David, Solomon, all the glory of Israel will return, reestablish the autonomy of Israel as a nation. On this particular day, they were convinced this is the man. They're waving palm branches. They're rejoicing. They're even putting down clothes for him to ride the donkey on. They're like, we're all in. We're convinced. Or were they? Or were they? Taking us, first thing we want to look at this morning, his arrival. We see his arrival here. We're going to read other passages, but we start off with John chapter 12 and his arrival. As I mentioned last week in the Arise and Go message, Jesus' entire life was an unstoppable mission. Remember, from the manger in Bethlehem to the cross, all the way to the throne in heaven. Nothing could derail it. Satan couldn't derail it. He tried to derail it. Wilderness. He thought he was dead in the grave. But nothing could derail it. Manger, cross, throne. Unstoppable mission. Good news for us that it was an unstoppable mission. Amen? And his entrance here on this final Passover week on earth, this is the third Passover he's come to in his three-year ministry. So this is the third and the final Passover that he will attend in his earthly ministry, the 33 years on the earth. But the third in the three-year ministry, all foreordained by the will of God. And he's going to go from hero to hated in a matter of days. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. Can you imagine that? Hero to hated in a matter of days. But as he approaches Jerusalem, he's traveling on that road that leads to Bethany on the backside of um, the Mount of Olives and all the way down to Jericho. He's fully aware, he's fully aware of all that awaits him in this city and now it's overflowing with Jewish travelers. The anticipation of Passover and his arrival for various reasons. He, he knows all this is happening. Here's the lay of the land. I'm going to give you a little lay of the land. You know I love maps. If you don't know that, if you're visiting, I do love maps. <laughs> Kids love them in the back of the Bible. They're like, this guy's boring, but there's maps back here. <laughs> And I can study these maps until this thing is over. Well, now, kids, you can look up because there's actually one on the screen. Similar to some of the ones you see in the back, but better uh, than some of the ones you see in the back. So there in the first century, um, you have a couple things I've got listed here. Uh, you've got the Mount of Olives, the arrows pointing both ways. This road leads back to Bethany, which is on the uh, east side of the Mount of Olives, and then it moves northeast, and it goes all the way down to Jericho, down as in moving down in elevation. That road that goes down to Jericho, uh, Mount of Olives sits 2,700 feet above sea level. That road to Jericho, around Bethany, down to Jericho, goes down to Jericho 846 feet below sea level. So Jericho is below sea level down near the Dead Sea. But that gives you a lay of the land as far as what's to the east. And then you have here in the city itself, uh, or just outside the city, just outside the city is the Mount of, I'm sorry, Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot 
of the Mount of Olives, really right on the Kidron Valley there. And you've got Gordon's Calvary, and Gordon's Calvary's on the top. Golgotha's here. That's a debate as to whether Jesus was crucified up there at Gordon's Calvary or at the traditional site. Both are outside the first wall. So this gives you everything that takes place that week takes place in this picture with the only exception of Jesus going to Bethany, Bethany, which falls outside the picture. To sleep each night he goes to Bethany. Everything else takes place in that frame. The entire week takes place in that frame, including the resurrection. Everything is right there. Now, as Jesus descends down the Mount of Olives, this is a, a picture of when we were over there, uh, Troy was, Pastor Troy Lynchburg was teaching that particular day. And uh, you can see the vista um, of the city and the vista we had up there. Jesus would have had the same exact vista. Of course, it wouldn't have all the, the tombs and, and buildings in the background that you see today. But you see the steep uh, decline, and that's why the roads are diagonal, because you don't want to go straight down the hill. You have the diagonal road that cuts across. And you have a wider view here. Here's a wider view of the city of Jerusalem. I took this one as well from a little higher vantage point. And you look at the, um, this wider view, you'll see the eastern gate is walled up. See the eastern gate right there? And you have the eastern gate for those of you over here. It's right there. All the other gates in Jerusalem, if you go there today, they're all open. You can walk right in them, but that one is sealed. And it has been sealed uh, since the Ottoman Sultan uh, um, Suleiman sealed it in 541 A.D. And why did he seal it? Well, he learned that the Jewish Messiah would come through the eastern gate. And so once he learned that the Messiah would come through the eastern gate, he said, i got a solution, wall it up. And then he can't enter that gate. He'll have to enter a different gate, which would change the prophecies. And I don't think that's a problem for God, do you? <laughs> I don't think this is a big problem for God. Uh, but we might have a hint in Scripture about it in Psalm 24, 7. I'm not telling you for sure, but it may be a hint. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Uh, wouldn't be hard for God, like you hit your garage door opener and your garage goes up. God says, that goes up, just right on up. And that's not the original gate, by the way. It's built exactly where Solomon had built the first east gate to the first temple that was destroyed, and then that gate was rebuilt several times. This particular gate was built a couple hundred years after Jerusalem was destroyed, but it's always been built on the same exact spot. And it's been walled up several times, each time by Muslim sultans. Uh, I think three times total it had been walled up, the last time by Suleiman in 541. Uh, AD. But again, maybe a hint. Uh, here's how the temple looked in Jesus' day. Uh, again, kids, you can look up from the maps. You've got some more pictures for you here. Uh, here's how the temple looked in Jesus' day. And it was massive. It dwarfed the city. You can see how small the homes look in reference point. This is built to, is drawn to scale. So you can see how small the homes look. And some of those homes are large homes where many people could live, especially if you look to the what would be the south end off the portico. The portico has the red roof there. But uh, the Mount of Olives, you're looking, now you're inside the city and you're looking east towards the Mount of Olives. You're looking east towards the Mount of Olives there. 
And you can see Jesus' descent would be diagonal across from the road of Jericho down across the Mount of Olives, all the way down into the Kidron Valley, then up the Kidron into, and the Valley of Kidron is just a small brook uh, there, but then into the East Gate. And so there you've got how things looked from, um, from inside the city if you're looking east. Now you wonder, you know, why, why am I showing these maps and you know, why do I show these pictures uh, and these renderings of the first century? Well I do it, and again those of you that are online, maybe you're visiting, maybe you haven't been to a church service in years, I do it to remind everyone that the Bible is 100% true and everything that is there most of it you can verify. Things you can't verify, like you know Jesus walking on water, that happened, you're not there to ever see that again. But the lake he did it, that's still there, the Sea of Galilee. All the places, all of the antiquity, they, they keep finding things. We talked about they just found uh, these uh, recent scrolls and the, and, the, and the warning we see from uh, the book of Nahum uh, that came out of that just, uh, just a couple weeks ago. But I show these things to say that again, it's all real, it happened exactly the way the, the Bible scholars and the authors have written it down, and Jerusalem's still the epicenter. It's not New York. It's not Shanghai. It's not Paris. not London. It's not Rio de Janeiro. The, the whole epicenter of everything is in Jerusalem. It was then, and it will all come back to there in the end. Now as Jesus descended people would have lined the road. You can see kind of an image of what the vista would look like. Uh, the people would have lined the road all the way down the mountain. Remember you have thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over the world. They could line the entire road and they were lining it on both sides like a parade but they were also throwing down their clothing. So hey here's my Sunday best, just trample, let the donkey walk right over it. My white shirt would not look good. At the end of all of that, donkeys don't keep themselves all that clean, but uh, down the mountain he would go. And I, I read this from a scholar. I'd never read, had this thought before. I read this from a, a scholar. I don't remember which one. It's way back when. But he talked about the fact that at this time, remember it's Passover season, every family had to have their own Passover lamb. They had to have the clean lamb. And you would have thousands of lambs surrounding the lamb all descending and ascending to Jerusalem. So you have this picture of Jesus on a donkey and there's lots of other lambs too. But the lamb, the spotless lamb among all the lambs. And Jesus is riding a donkey which is prophesied in where? Zechariah 9.9. He's not on a war horse. By the way, his second coming, guess what he's on? A war horse. Second time he comes, there'll be a sword coming out of his mouth. But not this first time, he came on a beast of burden to display humility and that he's coming in peace. The people, they look past all this. He's not on a war horse. Remember, they want a king. They look past all this. He's on a donkey. They look past the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. All this goes right over their heads. And if they're laying down their clothes on the road and they're waving these palm branches in the air, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're convinced he's our ruler. He's the one. This is the Messiah. Thousands, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people are convinced this is the Messiah. 
the throngs are ready to give their full loyalty to Jesus, and it'll last for at least a couple of days. <laughs> Sounds like people's loyalty today, doesn't it? We're going to give you all of our loyalty, and it'll even last till Friday. Sad, isn't it? By the way, these palm branches, they're all over Israel. If you get a chance to go, we want to go back and maybe 2022, 2023. Palm branches are everywhere in Israel. Lots of other cool uh, vegetation trees too, the acacias, other things. But the palm branches are everywhere. The palm trees are everywhere. They're native to the land of Israel. They have their own native. The native tree was the Judean palm, which the Romans cut down to extinction. Uh, they finally found seeds of one little tiny jar in the case of Qumran. Remember, they I've told this before, they planted a seed that was 3,000, or at least 2,000 years old, if not older, and Methuselah has grown, and it's alive right now in Israel. They've got a fence around it, and so Judean date palm is regrowing, which is also a type and shadow of Israel regrowing. But the nation itself, uh, you know, palm trees, very native to the land, um, they appear often in Israel's history, in worship, in the temple itself, all the different temples, uh, the rebuilds, the feasts, re, uh, you'll see palms in the feast, in the currency, they would put palm trees on the currency and more. I could give many, many examples of this. Uh, the commanded annual feast of Sukkot, uh, which is just after Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is also known as what? The Day of Atonement. That's a fall feast, whereas obviously Passover is in the spring. Uh, but Sukkot was a commanded annual feast and just after uh, Yom Kippur where they would make these booths and they had to be made of what? Palm branches and other branches and they would live in the little booth for seven days and it was a picture of when they lived in where? In the wilderness and God shaded them and God of course is their covering and they'd make that and it was a rejoicing, it was a rejoicing of what? The exodus that they had gotten out of Egypt and they were under the covering of God, so these little palm booths. So we actually see that Sukkot emphasized rejoicing that God had brought them out of Egypt, whereas Passover is rejoicing that they weren't killed in Egypt. Both are related to the Exodus. Both are related to God intervening. And just like Passover, again, it's, it's all about God's deliverance, God's provision, God provides... And then they have these palm trees, again, these palm leaves, which, which are very much tied to rejoicing. In Psalm 92, 12, it says, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. I quote this verse to myself many, many times. I have about 30, 40, maybe 50 verses that come to my mind a lot. This is one I quote a lot. It's weird and chaotic and messed up as our nation is and this world is. You can still flourish as beautiful as a palm tree in this crazy dark world. Isn't that great to know? Jesus was, nothing made him flinch. No matter how the world was, he was as resolute and calm as he could possibly be, and God wants you to be the same way. Palm branches were also carved into the walls of the temple built by Solomon. The Judean date palm became the symbol of Judah, which was the largest tribe. Judah is what? The tribe that Jesus comes from as well. So the palm tree He's from the tribe of Judah, becomes the symbol of Judah. That, the lion, and the palm tree, both kind of symbolism in the tribe of Judah. Judah, of course, uh, Jesus had to come from the tribe of Judah to be the uh, seat of David. The palm was minted on the coins. You saw one of, uh, the image of one of the coins I put on the screen there from the Maccabean period. 
uh, they started to uh, print the currency with coins. Palm branches were always waved in celebration. Uh, for example, the rededication of the temple in 164 BC, they were waving palm branches when they rededicated the temple. So, interestingly enough, all of the symbol of the celebration with palm branches, it's so is significant in the Bible, it's going to get lifted up into heaven. Even the palm branch thing, you're going to someday see it if you're born again and you're saved. Check this out if you've never seen it or read past it, didn't even notice it. In Revelation 7, 9, after these things, this is John seeing this great multitude of martyred saints that have come out and are born again. He says, I see, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and the lamb. There's the Passover lamb. We see the Passover lamb and the palms together here, clothed with white robes and what? Palm branches in their hands. If you have never waved a palm branch, your day is coming. There's one reserved, perfect. God says, reserve, tells the angels, reserve millions of palm branches in the heavenlies, and someday I will hand them to each saint waving palm branches. If you've never done it, if you want to practice next time you're in Florida or of South Carolina, or you can cut one off. People ask what you're doing. I'm practicing for the future when someday I will be waving this in heaven with the saints. But all of this triumphant celebration, all the adoration of Jesus that we see, you would think this is going to be an amazingly awesome Jesus lifted up all week. But that's not how the week's going to go, is it? Taking notes. Let's look at the next thing in our text his rejection. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. So you'll have to go left in your Bible if you're in the book of John. Only one book over. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 45. And we see something that takes place here, and it kicks off the rest of the week as well as a firestorm for Jesus. Then he went into the temple began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the people, sought to destroy him, and they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to him. So here's the beginning of the week. Jesus goes, first thing he does as he clears out the temple, say, I thought we've seen this before. Didn't we see this in John? Yes, that was in the first Passover visit in year one of his ministry. This is year three. This is the second time he clears out the temple, overturns everything, money changers. By the way, it also shows that the people went right back to their sins. They did not allow him to clean up the temple. They brought the corruption straight back in. Sounds like a lot of us in our lifetimes when we didn't really repent, we would bring our sins straight back in. What not really a change. But because Jesus was God's Passover lamb for Israel, and in fact the whole world, he's going to need to be inspected throughout this week, just as what was required for the Passover lambs that were brought for sacrifice. You see, the law required that every household, a lamb for the household, and maybe if it could cover two households, you could have that. But every lamb had four days of examination, four days where you had to inspect it to ensure there was no spot, 
no blemish. And this is exactly what takes place with Jesus over the first four days of his final week in Jerusalem. He actually first inspects them and says, everything out. You're corrupt. You've corrupted my father's house. He inspects them. And then he begins to daily teach in the temple. And people are listening. They're attentive. Remember, they just worshiped him. Of course they're listening. Is he going to say when he's going to take out Caesar? Is he going to say when he's going to call fire down on Rome? Just smoke their chariots? They're listening. They're attentive. But there's also a succession of attempts to find error or fault in him, specifically in his teaching. As the teachers of the law and the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they were even competing factions, but yet they were unified in their dislike of Jesus. And they questioned Jesus, and they looked for flaws in his teaching, they looked for flaws in him, looked for flaws in his character, Evidence, they wanted to find some evidence that Jesus was a fraud. The irony is, they're frauds. You ever see this a lot? Some of the biggest liars in our country are constantly, constantly calling people liars. You ever notice this? You're like, well, I can't even tell when you tell the truth, and yet you're calling people liars? You know, well, we have this, this innate, not a good thing, in our human condition this cognitive dissonance, not even to understand we are what we're saying everybody else is, and they're trying to prove that Jesus is a fraud, and they were the frauds. Jesus is the only one in the history of humanity that's, that wasn't a fraud. All of us in this room are at some level kind of a fraud. You're all in this room, and all you go on, I hate to break to you, you have a little bit of hypocrite in you. you say, well, if the truth be told, I have a lot of hypocrite in me. yes. And so they were trying to find that Jesus was just as evil as them, but he wasn't. He was pure. They're trying to find flaw. And the leaders, all the while, the leaders have no intentions of examining themselves. One of the reasons we come to church, those of you online, one of the reasons we come is to examine ourselves. We don't come here to say, here is the holy remnant. We come to be purified on a right now, not just on Sunday. I'm doing this on Monday. I'm doing this on Tuesday. Lord, every day I need to be renewed. But they had no, the leaders had no intention of examining themselves, had no intention of considering what Jesus was saying is actually true. They had no desire to even believe for a second that he was sent from God. And yet thousands of people, they're gathered there in Jerusalem. Many of them still believe Jesus is the Messiah. They have a mis, kind of, they have the wrong conception of what Messiah should be, but they do believe he is the Messiah. They believe he's sent from God, and yet they're still unaware that he was sent not to set up a new government structure, but to save their sin, save them from their sins, and to save their soul, not to be their new king. The religious leaders, however, they had long before rejected Jesus. And they had a twofold plan. One, to bide their time for the per perfect time to trap him. Second, to galvanize consensus among the people that, hey, y'all have been duped. He's not holy. He's not from God. You're not going to hell, all this other stuff. He's not who you think he is. He's not greater than the temple. 
He's not greater than our father Abraham. All the, whatever it was, they wanted to build consensus among the people. That was their twofold plan. Bide time to trap him, build consensus with the people. The religious elite, they had already made their call. They had already made their call. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which took place where? In Bethany, just that short road around the backside of the Mount of Olives. The raising, and I don't have time to go into all that. Remember, um, half the book of John, all those other percentages I gave you, I have to do all this in 45 minutes. But you can go back and trace. The raising of Lazarus was a big deal. It convinced them that once he had raised Lazarus from the dead, his popularity was going to soar. It already was at a high point, but the, they were convinced everyone will believe in him. That's what they said. We've got to do something about it. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, they were convinced Jesus' popularity would grow. And then the clearing of the temple for the second time he had done it further enraged them. They did not like this man telling them that they were corrupting the temple. But Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, even before Jesus had arrived for this last Passover, even before he had descended down the mountain on the foal of a donkey, before Jesus even gets to Jerusalem, Caiaphas, the high priest, he had already condemned Jesus in abstentia, if you will. He had already condemned Jesus. Turn with me. Uh, there was already an unofficial uh, sentence of death. Turn with me to John chapter 11. Go back right. It's the only other time you have to go right, I believe. Uh, John chapter 11. Let's look at exactly what Caiaphas has to say. And this is shortly after Rat Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Same, um, same chapter. But pick it up in verse 48. And so one of, the, uh, one of the priests says to the high priest that Caiaphas is the top dog. He is the most powerful religious leader in all of the Jewish world. And so one of the other uh, religious leaders says to Caiaphas in verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Well, of course, he's healing people, he's feeding people, now he's raising people from the dead. Our politicians can't even keep a single promise, much less raise someone from the dead or feed somebody, Right? Jesus is doing all of this, and he said, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. They said, Rome is going to not like if this man rises higher and higher. Here's Caiaphas speaking, verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. This is not the kind of boss you want to work for. Caiaphas tells, you all know nothing. He wasn't politically correct. Uh, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not for the whole nation to perish. Now this he did, not to say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, verse 52, and not for the nation also, uh, only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. That's even you and me. We're the children of God now scattered all over the world, every tongue, tribe, nation, which we see back there in Revelation 7. Caiaphas, by the will of God, Caiaphas hates Jesus. He's already given the, the vote in abstention. When he arrives, if we can get, catch him, if we can find him, he needs to die. Caiaphas, by the will of God, prophesied that Jesus' death will be sufficient for not only God actually with roles, that's why you have to pray for your leaders, God knows Kings and authority rise and fall on, the, on God's sovereignty. 
And so Caiaphas prophesies because he has the high priest of Aaron's role, not because he's a good man. He's not. He was an evil leader. But God still has him prophesy. If he can have a donkey speak, he can have Caiaphas speak. So it, it, either way, he can do that. The opportunity and the break, though, that the leaders were waiting for, it comes when one of Jesus' twelve named who? Judas. Judas informs them that he can be paid off. Judas like, if you give me enough cash, I'll get you a secret place where you don't have to fear the crowds. I'll make sure that you, that you can find him in a dark, secret place. You can arrest him and then come up with all the charges and I'll take care of everything. I know where he goes. I know how to pull this off. They were more than happy to pay Judas. And of course, they, they, they come to an agreement that he will betray Jesus. And then the leaders first have already rejected Jesus even before he gets there. Judas now rejects him after serving with him for three years. Judas decides to sell out his Savior. Each domino is now lining up for Jesus to be hemmed in, condemned, and put to death. But he wasn't avoiding their trap. His face was set for Jerusalem from the, from the manger. He wasn't avoiding it. Jesus knew everything. He knew Judas was thinking about this weeks before Judas ever went to them. He could have said, Judas, why are you thinking of this? Why are you going to do this? He could have said to the priest, I know your plan. I know your trap. I know what you're going to try to fix. And by the way, when that time comes, I'm going to, I'm going to, just, I'm going to whistle and a hundred lions are going to come from nowhere and devour you all. Which he could have done. But he's walking right in on purpose. He wasn't avoiding their trap. It's in love. It's in obedience to the Father that he's taking each step to the cross. In fact, just before Judas went to betray Jesus... Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 to go left again. Just before Judas is um, about to betray Jesus, Jesus knows he's about to do it. He says to the disciples in Matthew chapter 26, by the way, here's what the temple area looked like. And uh, Judas is... Um, in Matthew chapter 26, I think I might have that verse up there. You don't have to turn there. I've got it on the screen as well. But anyway, if you did, it's good practice. He said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, Judas is about to do this, and Jesus is saying before Judas did it, by the way, I'm going to be crucified. Now, you would think that this should prompt a lot of response doesn't always work that way. Those of you that are married, you know how this goes. Spouse is talking to you. You're talking. Well, your spouse is talking to you. You're hearing, and they say, are you hearing what I'm saying? Yes, I heard everything you said. Repeat it back. I heard what you said. I just don't know what you said, right? Yeah, has that ever happened to anyone in this room? I heard what you said. I just don't have a clue what you said. This is them. They hear Jesus. They don't know what he's saying. They hear him. They just don't. There's a glaze. It's going right over their head. Their minds are somewhere else. They're not, they don't get. And it said, oh, time out. Did you just say crucified? When? 
he says that after two days of the Passover, the Son of Man will be delivered. He's saying, in Passover week, I'm going to be crucified. Straight over their heads. Now, by the time they get to the Passover, where does that take place? In the upper room in Jerusalem. You saw the city. They're in an upper room in Jerusalem. Right there in the ancient city. Jesus has a room prepared. They're having the Passover meal. It's in the Passover meal that Judas slips out. He's filled with Satan. The Bible says that Satan actually comes and inhabits him. He slips out knowing that Jesus was going to go where? The Garden of Gethsemane, which is just outside the city walls, down little Kidron Valley there, up the side of uh, the Mount of Olives, just barely up the side of the Mount of Olives, it's at the foot, and there is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Jesus often went there. Judas knew the whole routine. So he goes and gets the temple guard, the chief priest. They actually send out the men. Jesus is arrested in the garden. Remember, he's sweating drops of blood in the garden. That's where he already fully said, Father, thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. He's arrested there in the middle of the night. It's actually the wee hours of the morning because Jewish calendar, day starts when sun goes down. But it's the wee hours of the morning, the middle of the night for us. He's arrested in the middle of the night. He's taken first to Caiaphas' father-in-law, then to Caiaphas because Caiaphas' father-in-law was originally the high priest. He's mocked. He's beaten. He's condemned. He's spit upon. All this happens in the middle of the night to kangaroo, kangaroo court and false charges. The priest, they, they know, they can't, they can't even get anyone's witnesses to line up. They can't even get the witnesses to line up. But they finally convince themselves that he's blasphemed God and saying that he comes from God and saying that he's the son of God. And by morning... They have trumped up these charges and they're able to convince the same adoring crowds that just days before are waving palm branches are now waving their fist and saying, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, who is a murderer. Barabbas didn't raise anyone from the dead. Barabbas only put people to death. Barabbas didn't heal anyone. He only hurt people. Barabbas didn't teach anyone anything unless it was how to be evil. They said, we want Barabbas. They were convinced in just a couple of days their whole minds were changed and they choose a murderer over Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus' fate, it lies with who? Pontius Pilate and to some extent Herod because he sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back. Pilate and Herod didn't even like each other and after that day they become good friends, by the way. The enemy of my enemy is our friend. You know know the whole thing. But anyway, bottom line is that Pilate then ultimately condemns Jesus. Pilate condemns Jesus' to death, even though he can't find any fault in Jesus. He condemns him to crucifixion, exactly the form of death Jesus said. He, he said, I, I'm going to be stoned, crucified. Stoning was the Jewish form of death. He said he'd be crucified. Pilate rejects Jesus for his career, even though he knows. Even his wife said, have nothing to do with this innocent man. Pilate rejects him for his career. Many people are still rejecting Jesus for their career today. Many people. Some of you in this room, maybe online, have been rejecting Jesus for your career or, your, or to be loved by people or your social strata or whatever it is. But the Jewish leaders, Caiaphas represents the whole nation of Israel. When Caiaphas rejects Jesus, he stands for the whole of the Jewish realm. When Pilate rejects Jesus, it stands for the whole 
Gentile realm. And so both Israel and the world say, thanks but no thanks, put him to death. And by 9 a.m., Jesus is going to be put to death. Last thing we'll look at this morning, coming to a close here, his sacrifice. Because again, he finishes the Passover meal from the wee hours of the morning to about 6 a.m. is the Jewish leaders condemning him. They had already done it in abstentia long before he got there, but now they got the Sanhedrin together. Then they get him to Pilate. Then Pilate back and forth, and Pilate's trying to figure out how to get out of this whole thing, and finally he realizes, I can't get out of it. He's going to have to die. Even if he's innocent, I don't care. I'm washing my hands of it. But by 9 a.m., Jesus goes to the cross. But I want to take us back for one last time um, the night of the Passover. Look with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 22. You know this passage well when we take of the Lord's Supper, but I want you to kind of understand it as Jesus is very close to going... He knows he's about to be betrayed. And as they were eating, Jesus took, verse 22, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup when he had given thanks. We're in Passover, sorry, last night, Passover week. He's the Passover lamb. They don't see him as the Passover lamb. They don't understand. They just think he's rabbi, teacher. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. That's the crucifixion. Surely I say to you, I will no longer drink the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it in the new kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Bible is very specific about the geography, the place, out to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, base of the mount there. But Jesus is saying, look, you're going to need my bloodshed. You're going to need my body. Again, it's still all going over them. He's totally willing. It's, it's not anyone railroading Jesus, although they did, it's that he allowed them to railroad him. Does that make sense? He totally, he said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. I have power to raise it back up again. Last passage, by, like I said, by 9 a.m., Jesus has been nailed to the cross. Matthew chapter 27, last passage we'll turn to. Matthew chapter 27, starting verse 35. I mean, there's so much to the story. We're talking about 35, 40, 45% of the Gospels dedicated to this final week, and we're doing just a few minutes here this morning, and then more next um, Sunday with Easter Sunday. But Matthew chapter 27, verse 35. Then they crucified him. So it's 9 a.m., there in Jerusalem, and they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lot. Sitting down, they kept watch over him. And there they put over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, or Yeshua, the king of the Jews. They were calling him king, waving palm branch early in the week. Now it says king of the Jews, but it's not over a throne. It's not over an ivory throne overlaid with gold. It's a cross, and his blood is running down the cross. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand, one on the left. He's a man who's perfect without sin, but he's crucified in the middle of sin. 
robber on one side and on the other side, and as you know, one of them actually comes to his senses and Jesus uh, pardons him there on the cross. But Jesus is there on the cross taking all of our sins upon him, and not only that, it goes on, and just the complete uh, just blasphemy of those that speak in verse 39, and those who pass by blaspheming him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. They're still really irked about that whole temple thing where Jesus said the temple will be destroyed. Of course it would in 70 AD. Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders and said, he saved others, such as Lazarus. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. God will never come to us on our terms. Our belief is on his terms. And we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. And now if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Of course, that was the reason they crucified him. That was their charge. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. We'll stop right there. About 1,600 years before Jesus willingly went to the cross, Abraham had a son named Isaac. He took Isaac, and Isaac willingly laid down on an altar. It was a foreshadow. Isaac was the son, the only begotten son of his father, and he willingly lays down on an altar. And the altar was on a mount called Mount Moriah. Do you know where Mount Moriah is? It's the Temple Mount today. So in the same place where Abraham takes Isaac, Jesus retraces the steps and goes and is condemned right there on Mount Moriah. He's crucified adjacent to it, just north of the Temple Mount. But unlike Isaac, he doesn't get off the altar where God provided what? A ram was caught in a thicket. This time God provided the lamb, the Passover lamb, the, the lamb for all lambs, and instead of getting off, Jesus stretches out his arms and they drive in the Roman stakes into his arms or into his hands and into his feet. Jesus is the lamb God provided. It was the foreshadow, just like Isaac's willingness, just like God said, I'll provide a ram, I'll provide a lamb, he provides his own son. And Jesus lays down his life adjacent to that same Mount Moriah, fulfilling that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And as the Passover lambs were being slain, Jesus is slain at the exact same time the Passover lamb is slain. The spotless lamb, he stretches out his arms, and the shed blood is running down his body, running down the cross, for your rejection, my rejection. Your sin, my sin. Your rebellion, my rebellion. Your thoughts that no one else on this planet Earth has ever known you thought, but God knows you thought, and even maybe today. All of that, all of that, His blood is shed for all of that. A willing sacrifice. Your sins and my sins put Him there. But love kept Him there. Amen? He could have flown off the cross. If it was you or me, I would have done some damage to people that day. How about you? But Jesus didn't. He said, no, I'm going to do some atonement, some reconciliation, some healing, some forgiving. Love kept Jesus there. I'll close with this. If Jesus was not paraded, 
If he was not then persecuted, and then he was not then finally pierced in his hands and his feet, you and I are wasting our time being here this morning. You might as well do something else. But, and this is what you've got to tell people, you not just Easter, but July, if it's all true, you better look at what Jesus has done because it's of eternal importance. Amen? If this is a myth, just go find something else fun to do with your life. But if it's true, it means everything for our eternal soul and everyone else's as well. Amen? Let's close in prayer. I just want to speak again to those online for just a moment. Maybe you're here, maybe you're here, maybe you're online and you've never given your heart and life to Jesus. You know, he came not to be worshiped, but to be crucified. He will come back a second time for judgment and, and to be worshiped. The whole world will bow, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But now is our opportunity. Now is our opportunity. You can be forgiven of anything. Some of the Roman soldiers, I don't know if you know those of you online, but some of the Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross realized by the end they said, truly this was the Son of God. They recognized his perfection in his sacrifice. And maybe you're online or maybe you're here this morning and say, I, I have never considered that I need to put my faith and trust. Or if I considered, I just put it off. And I want to speak to you and say, that t- don't put it off. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know, uh, you know, these people that were shot in a grocery store, they had no idea. They were going to the gro- if, you, if they'd have known they were going to be shot in the grocery store, you think they'd have gone to the grocery store that day? No. They'd have gone to the YMCA or somewhere else. But they said, I'm not going there because there's going to be 10 people killed. But Jesus gives us today, the Bible says, the day of salvation. Amen? Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. You say, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to be cleansed. I, want, I don't want to have this guilt or shame. You mentioned thoughts that I've had that no one else in the world knows about but me. Well, Jesus knows them, but he's willing to forgive everything. Isn't that great? He said on the cross, even on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But he will give forgiveness, but we have to ask for it. And we have to give him our life. Say, Lord, no more games. I'm giving you my life. So I want to just lead you in a prayer. If you're, if you're online or you're here and you want to give your life to Christ, if you're here this morning and you want to do that, why don't you stand right where you're at? I don't, I don't always ask you to stand, but if you're here and you want to give your life to Christ, Jesus died publicly, stripped and nailed publicly. Just stand right where you're at. Say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're at home. Just stand in your living room. If you're driving, don't stand. Pull over. But um, wherever you're at, just stand and say, Lord, I want to give you my I want to follow you. I can't see online, but if you're here this morning and you want to do that, I'm going to begin to pray. Just follow along in your own heart. If you mean it, God tests the heart, and then we confess with the mouth, Lord Jesus, just repeat in your own words, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for willingly coming. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for going to the cross to shed your blood as my Passover lamb, as my sacrifice for sin. Thank you for willingly dying and suffering. Lord, I confess that I have sinned against you, and even the greatest sin of all, just rejecting you up until now. And I ask that you would forgive me and cleanse me from all my iniquity, all of my sins, all of my transgressions. Wash me 
by the blood of Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name in the Lamb's book of life for I have decided this day to follow you, Jesus. And with your help, Lord, I will never turn back. I will follow you all the way until you take me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.